Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper with the Public Policy Channel, and today I'm pleased to welcome David Garland. David is the author of The Welfare State, a very short introduction, published in 2016 by Oxford University Press. David, welcome. Thank you. So before we turn to this book itself, I wonder if you might talk just a little bit about uh, your previous projects and interests, maybe the, some of the things that, that uh, have animated you in the past and what you've written on before we talk about what led to this particular project. Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, most of my career, I've been working in the field of criminology and especially the sociology of punishment. Um, I've done books that talk about the way in which Crime control has developed over time, um, books about mass incarceration or the death penalty in the USA. Um, I really began that project, that, that kind of lengthy uh, career project um, in sociology of punishment with a book called Punishment and Welfare, uh, which came out almost 30 years ago, I guess. Um, and the Punishment and Welfare book was looking at how the development of the welfare state in the 1890s, 1900s in Great Britain had transformed criminal justice and the way that we deal with offenders, the way that we punish, the kind of reformatory projects of rehabilitation and treatment and so on. Um, and that work was always in the background, that kind of sense of the welfare state and modern government with its extensive responsibilities. That was always in the background of my work um, on crime and punishment. Um, so, for example, a book I wrote in 2001 called Culture of Control, mm-hmm. um, which has been quite influential in, in modern criminology, was really about how uh, crime control and punishment changed once neoliberal and neoconservative ideas um, and political forces began to change welfare states in, in the UK and, and really um, brought about a kind of shift in styles of governance and control towards the more penal end of things rather than the social end. So that's the kind of work I've been doing. Um, I should say that I began my life and, and my career in Great Britain. I was born in Dundee, Scotland. I'm, I'm a kind of product of the British welfare state. Um, and I moved here to New York about 20 years ago. So over that time, my interests have become more focused in the USA, but I retain these kind of uh, formative um, projects and ideas. Terrific. So uh, the book that we're talking about, the the very short introduction to the welfare state, uh, focuses much more broadly, but it does by and large focus the bulk of its attention on the U.S. and the U.K. Um, I'm assuming that you think that's a fair summary of of where the attention of the book winds up being. Yeah, the the book tries to to look at um, the variety of welfare states, the history of welfare states, but in order to make it... um, focused and accessible. I've I've talked mostly about the US and the UK. However, I do situate these two um, uh, regimes, these welfare regimes, against the kind of background of some information about how it's done in in Scandinavia with social democratic regimes, how it's done in continental Europe with um, 
more Christian democratic or conservative regime. So there's the reader would find uh, most of the discussion is about the US and the UK, but they'd get a sense of how these welfare states or the, that New Deal great society um, uh, set of institutions, how they look in the wider uh, compass of mm-hmm. welfare states everywhere. So before we, and I want to make sure that we turn our attention to looking at that variation and see if we can make some sense of it. Uh, but why don't we start with with some basic for our listeners who may not be familiar, uh, either with the literature or the terminology. Um, what's a welfare state? Right. The welfare state is um, a, a much misunderstood and, and these days much abused term. So it's really a good place to start um, a conversation there. But basically, um, I use the notion of a welfare state in a very broad way to talk about the um, the characteristic forms of modern government in, in democratic, particularly liberal democratic societies, um, whereby the uh, government organizes um, the provision of levels of social security, uh, employment benefit, um, sometimes social rights and protection, sometimes the extent of government of the economy, all in the interest of making free market capitalism habitable for um, the mass of people who occupy uh, capitalist societies. In other words, really from the, the late 19th century onwards, the development of capitalist systems of economic exchange produced characteristic problems um, for particularly property-less laborers caught up in um, that system of employment. But governments everywhere have developed solutions to and responses to it. So I think of welfare state as being the kind of accompanying institutional complement to the capitalist societies, the capitalist economies that now um, dominate in, in all developed societies. So welfare states take a variety of forms, but what they all do is they um, modify and manage and to some extent moralize the underlying system of, uh, of capitalist exchange. So before we talk about that a little bit more, so what was in place uh, if the, if the modern welfare state is, is a, a product of uh, modern industrial capitalism, what did states do in terms of social welfare and social supports prior to that? I wonder if that context might be helpful for listeners. So I think so. The, the, the long-term story, um, prior really to the, the emergence of modern capitalism in the 18th and 19th centuries, the long-term story is that, that um, economic exchange, production and consumption and, and, and exchange in marketplaces has always been um, governed by, has always been overlaid by religious and moral and social rules about, um, about who, can, who can produce what, whether you have to be a member of a guild or serve an apprenticeship or work for a master, uh, what kind of prices, certain kind of necessities like bread or beer or grain can be exchanged at, and then who, who can uh, consume what. These, these rules, as I say, social and religious um, and moral rules about economic provision and exchange, these were pretty much swept aside by the development of modern market capitalism. Um, so that in the 19th century, uh, particularly in somewhere like England, where um, modern free market capitalism developed fastest and most extensively, in the 19th century, what one, one uh, finds is a system where the historical traditional arrangements that provided for the poor, which ensured that, that um, social life, even for the 
the peasant or for the villains or for people who were low down in the hierarchy, that social life was sustainable. These traditional arrangements and social protections were abolished in the interest of freeing up market capital, allowing commercial classes to produce and exchange and, and for price to determine rather than social rules to determine what's bought and sold. Now, that was an enormously liberating and kind of um, transformative development, which, which produced lots of um, uh, progressive uh, outcomes, some of which we, we, we still celebrate. So, for example, getting rid of special interests and monopolies and privileges and, and uh, capacities of, of you know, this guild or, or that particular noble to govern the marketplace. These are all emancipating and liberating and produced a much more productive, much more um, uh, egalitarian kind of economy. On the other hand, as the, the, uh, the 1890s and the 1900s, especially the 1930s discovered, the, the system of market capitalism, free market capitalism, untrammeled market capitalism is incredibly destructive and unstable and insecure um, and without restraints, without kind of modifiers like employment protections or social security or social assistance. Um, it's really devastating for, for many people. In the 1930s was, I think, the, 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 the clearest example of how left to its own devices, um, the, the market and the labor market can actually just devastate communities and, and societies as a whole. So the collapse of democracies, the kind of coming of fascism and Nazism and communism across Europe in the 1930s and, and these kind of challenges in the USA as well at the same time, all of these convinced governments of the time, particularly after the Second World War, um, convinced governments of the time that one could not, in a liberal democratic society, allow the market to be utterly untrammeled that even the most market-oriented society like the USA had to put in place arrangements to stabilize that, to secure people against its consequences, to make sure that they could uh, retire in old age, out of work, and still sustain themselves. All of these arrangements were put in place um, in the, the, from the 1890s to the 1950s and 60s. That's what the modern welfare state looks like. But the, the, the book emphasizes that the modern welfare state is our latest chapter in a history where there's always been social and moral restraints on economic life. The aberration, the kind of historical uh, moment that was different from the rest of human history was the 19th century where free market capitalism tried to um, establish itself and, and was proven to be a kind of disaster as a consequence. So I, so I think there, there are two arguments that, that that I hear you making that, that I, that I find in the book that may be worth digging into in part, because I do think that they push back so much on, on public conceptions of, of a welfare state. One is that the, uh, the modern welfare state was an almost inescapable, uh, concomitant of modern capitalism, that modern capitalism sort of couldn't function or that it itself created the welfare state. 
And the second and related argument is that uh, capitalism can't function effectively, as we learned in the 1930s, without significant degrees of state intervention. I wonder if you could just dig down a little bit on on those two points, particularly in the ways in which they they push back against some of the rhetoric we particularly hear in the United States, although it is not limited to the United States anymore, to be sure, um, about the dangers of the welfare state, the way it inhibits uh, the free market, the ways it limits economic growth, the dangers that it presents, that that kind of rhetoric that uh, arguably is not well supported when we look at the, the evolution and the functioning of the modern welfare state. Yeah, I'd be happy to address both these questions. And what I, sh- what I should say beforehand is one of the reasons for my writing this book, um, and it's a book that attempts to um, be accessible and, and um, uh, directly address a kind of general readership and a Kind of a non-specialist readership. One of the reasons for writing it was that I'm just stunned by the uh, the distortion and misrepresentation of the welfare state that one finds, particularly in in American political discourse, increasingly also in in uh, British discourse, and maybe even in in uh, political discussions of the welfare state everywhere. But it seems to me that we really don't understand this um, institutional arrangement very well today. I think it was part of the, the, the book project to try and reestablish what welfare states are in a way that's supported by the, the history and the social science evidence. So let me address your, your questions. Um, the, the argument that historically uh, modern welfare states, by which I mean not just social assistance to the poor, not just means-tested benefits like temporary assistance to needy families or food stamps or general assistance, but a welfare state that's about providing social security, um, usually through social insurance um, and, and thus allowing people to um, to be children outside the, the labor market or to be ill or to be uh, old and retired outside the labor market. Social insurance was put in place everywhere in the, the developed capitalist world from the 1880s onwards. And the reason for that is really clearly um, explained in a classic book by Karl Polanyi, a book called The Great Transformation, which... Mm-hmm people will know of. And what Polanyi does, focusing again in his case, like Karl Marx did before him, on the development of capitalism in Britain, particularly in the 19th century, what Polanyi shows is that the project of establishing um, a free market, a market where labor was free to move and mobile, where money was uh, based on the gold standard, where trade was free, where all of the um, the inhibitions on free market capitalism were increasingly abolished. That was a project, a political project carried through with with force and and sometimes with violence that was established in the 19th century in Britain and which by and large succeeded there to a greater extent than anywhere else. That's to say that the the open free market liberal uh, economy was established from the 1830s on through the, the 1870s, 1880s. And what he says is that, that that project of establishing free market capitalism, which was a, was a political one, which was um, had its kind of ideologues and had its uh, proponents and, and basically was fought for as a, as a clear strategic uh, aim, that produced just a host of reactions from all sorts of different groups, from from conservatives, from landowners, from from the churches and philanthropists, from trade unions, uh, even from employers, and and particularly from uh, municipal governments and and, and city governments and so on. 
produced a whole series of what he thinks of as spontaneous reactions, which were concerned to manage and to um, react against the human social costs of free market capitalism. And basically, the, the, the kind of the, the pollution and industrial um, uh, urban life that, that made for cities that didn't work and, and squalor and idleness and difficulty, the mass unemployment that was a periodic consequence of the, the, uh, the sort of cycle of, uh, of market production, the, the sense that if left to its own devices, the free market will essentially uh, kill its own, it will kind of be yeah. socially unsustainable. That was not the kind of the socialist creed or some kind of um, welfare state project. That was just the reaction of all of the different bystanders who were dealing with the fallout of market capitalism. So essentially what you see Polanyi describing is from the 1880s, 1890s onwards, the beginning of a reaction against market capitalism that tries to build institutions that will protect families and individuals and old people and sick people and unemployed people from the market's impacts. So basically the story he tells, and I think he's essentially right about this, is that efforts to sustain free market capitalism with no governmental involvement and uh, modification turn out to be an impossible utopia. Um, and wherever it's been tried, it's been found to be just humanly unsustainable. Um, the, the, the argument, that that's a historical argument describing the developments in a particular place or a particular time. The argument stated as a more abstract kind of logical argument, a kind of functional account, is one that, that tends to the nature of capitalism as a, a form of economic production and exchange and consumption. And essentially, I, I discuss this a little in my book, where I point out that, that the um, it's just built into the, the capitalist mode of production that there will be a constant uh, process of instability mm -hmm. and change that comes about from a, a mass of different private agents who are pursuing profit, who whose decisions about investment, whose decisions about markets and so on, have no uh, make no reference to the community and, and social and, and human consequences of their decision, because what we basically do with capitalism is we leave it to private actors to produce the material basis of life on which we all rely. But these private actors aren't acting in the public good, they're acting in their own particular private interests. And so um, left to itself, capitalism tends to produce inequalities, insecurities, instability. Um, and in fact, it, it relies on a kind of anti-capitalism, a kind of not private but public, not economic but social set of arrangements to provide it with what it needs for a stable environment. So, for example, uh, capitalism re relies on families that will produce you know, young workers. It requires young workers who will be educated and trained and, and, and you know, have the capacities to carry out their work. It requires um, an infrastructure. It requires... Uh, the control of pollution and the environment and so on, there is just uh, a required social context upon which capitalist economic action depends, which is not given by capitalism, but which is required by capitalism. So basically, what, what my sense is, is that the welfare state is the kind of systematic complement 
to capitalism, which is nevertheless always in tension with capitalism, um, because clearly uh, welfare state arrangements are made on the basis of tax and spending. They're, they're made uh, in ways which uh, restrain and restrict what it is that private actors can do. So any system, and I mean every system today, that has a welfare state capitalist arrangement has built in system conflicts. Um, and the, the conflicts are particularly uh, visible in the welfare state societies or the capitalist societies like the USA or increasingly like Britain and Canada and Australia. The welfare state societies where the effort is to minimize the welfare state and um, to ensure that government is always minimally funded and to ensure that markets are always maximally um, established. And there you really see the tension between uh, private enterprise and the market and uh, social arrangements and government. You see it very vividly in a way that surprisingly you don't see it so clearly in more established, elaborate, comprehensive welfare states in, for example, the Scandinavian countries, the Nordic countries, because there welfare is much more, welfare state arrangements and social provision by government is much more integrated into the project of capitalism. What I mean by that is that, that in social democratic welfare states uh, in the, the Northern Europe and the Nordic countries, government plays a role and corporations and employers and unions and employees cooperate with government in ways that try to establish um, investment plans and uh, modernization plans and developmental undertakings for economic life, which will kind of bring the social and the economic, the public and the private into a kind of coordinated project. So instead of being utterly at odds with each other in intention and kind of constantly one undermining the other, the corporatist arrangements, the social democratic arrangements that you see in some welfare states, uh, make the social provision by government part and parcel of the economic undertaking by corporations. So they are much less hostile, much less contradictory, much less uh, tension-filled set of arrangements between the economic and the social. And I think that, that that's kind of, uh, to many American readers, a kind of rather alien arrangement. Um, and in fact, when Bernie Sanders in, in the 2016 election um, began to talk about, well, every other country has universal health care. Let's look at, for example, Denmark and how they arrange uh, their social provision. People thought he was talking about another planet. Actually, he's describing one variety of capitalism that happens to be different from the American variety, but is still capitalism. This, this is not, you know, we're not talking about very different social systems. These are capitalist arrangements in which, you know, capital uh, continues to be held in private hands by corporations. It's just that the way that the, the corporate decisions are made is much more socially responsive and government is much more involved uh, there than is the case in the, in the USA. So I wonder if this might be a good opportunity to maybe step back a little bit and, and talk a little bit about that, that variation in welfare states across regimes. Um, and I think even today, most, most of the thinking of most comparative welfare state scholars skills winds up going back to Just Esping Anderson, um, who talked about the ways in which uh, different welfare states shift our dependence among uh, three principal institutions, the state, the market, or the family, and how we 
wind up lodging our principal dependence plays out in different ways in different welfare states. I wonder if you could talk just sort of a little bit about how that breaks down across those three regimes, and then maybe we'll talk about some of the the emerging welfare states and the ways in which that typology may not be uh, as useful as it once was. Right. So what S.B. Anderson did back in the 1980s, 1990s, was actually to, to shift the way that comparisons think about uh, welfare state regimes. It's, it's always, always been the case ever since the 1960s began uh, scholars began to look at welfare states across uh, the different nations. It's always been clear that there's you know, a range, a variety, a continuum um, of different kinds of welfare states. And at first that was understood in terms of just more or less spending. Right. And there was a sense that, well, that the way in which you um, understand the variety of welfare states is look at the big spenders where, where um, the social uh, costs uh, or governmental involvement and, and tax redistribution is high as opposed to those that are low. What Espen Anderson did, I think, was very important. He began to look instead at the the character of welfare regimes and how they do things like decommodify um, social arrangements. For example, decommodifying means instead of buying education with cash or buying health care with cash um, or buying transport at its, at its cost, um, states decommodify um, by making these social goods, healthcare, for example, free at the, the, the point of need and the point of um, a patient coming in contact with a doctor. That, that decommodifies. Some welfare states have extensive decommodification. Others have very limited decommodification, but all of them have some. For example, even the USA, which is by far the more market-oriented of welfare states and in many ways the most minimal of welfare states, we decommodify public education. So uh, from kindergarten to 12th grade, kids will have school made available to them free of charge. Mm-hmm. That's the decommodification mm-hmm. of education. So that's one of the concerns of uh, Esping Anderson. The other is the way in which um, stratification is impacted by welfare states. He's very interested in seeing whether the outcomes of welfare provision is to diminish inequality or to sustain inequality. And surprisingly, uh, one of the things we know about welfare states is that they're often ways of reproducing the unequal status of middle class and, and welfare families rather than being ways of bringing up the poor and reducing inequality. Mm-hmm. So there, um, the the three types of welfare states, the three varieties of welfare states that Jost uh, Esping Anderson um, established in his typology were uh, liberal welfare states, which, by which he meant market-oriented welfare states, Christian Democrat or conservative welfare states, by which he means the kind of welfare states that Germany or Austria or continental Europe typically has, which rely heavily on um, the family uh, to reproduce welfare and also rely heavily on protecting the employment of the breadwinner, particularly the male um, so that the, uh, the focus is on uh, sustaining employment for the male who will be a breadwinner and the family is, is allowed to kind of flourish and, and to maintain its traditional roles. And the third type of welfare state, along with the liberal and the Christian Democrat, is what he calls the social democratic welfare state, particularly the Nordic and Scandinavian ones, where um, there's a commitment to universal provision. There is um, a, 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 less, a less extensive um, 
market-based uh, welfare and more extensive decommodification. And in which the family, interestingly enough, um, is transformed in its position because one of the things that, say, Swedish or Norwegian or, or Danish welfare states do is they make available um, childcare or they make available uh, sense of provision for old people, whether it's healthcare or retirement care and so on, in ways which free up and emancipate the chief family-based caregiver, which is the woman. So that, that mothers and, and wives and daughters in Scandinavian welfare states find that they're actually much more able to have a career, to become educated, to work, because the, the functions of childcare or the functions of the care of the elderly um, have been in some sense absorbed by this uh, governmental provision. And, and so that, that's a very interesting kind of set of consequences. It, it, it's, it shows that, that any set of welfare arrangements by government has consequences not just for the market and the, the, the provision of welfare by the, the labor contract, which is how most people get the, the money they need to survive, but it has also big implications for the family. And the family can either be, in some sense, sustained and reproduced in its traditional way, which is what the German system typically did when, up until quite recently, um, German arrangements focused on sustaining the, uh, the position of the male breadwinner and assumed that his dependents, his wife, his children, would actually be catered for by his, uh, his wages. Um, the Scandinavian arrangement, the social democratic arrangement, actually has the consequence of um, changing family dynamics, making it possible for women to, to work outside the home. It's been liberating and, and, and for feminists are kind of in emancipating progressive development. On and the other I mean, hand, changes... Yeah. I'm sure, I mean, I think that's a particularly important point for American listeners, because I think often that when um, folks here talk of, of the Scandinavian, Scandinavian welfare states in particular, they think, oh, my God, it's wildly expensive and everyone is sitting around uh, not working. And in many ways, it's it's quite the opposite, right? You've often got higher labor force participation rates in those countries, particularly among women, in part because of, as you've described the, the state is providing the services that make it possible for women to enter the labor market. And also because the very expense of those welfare states require higher labor force participation. So I think that it plays out in ways that surprise Americans who may not have a lot of familiarity with the, the functioning of those different kinds of regimes. That's exactly right. One of, one of the things that, that one of the things that absorbs uh, female labor in large part in uh, the Scandinavian countries actually are the social services and the, and the public services of the state that are providing childcare and, and healthcare and social services and so on, which has been a huge employer for women. But the point that you make about the, the need for high levels of labor market participation to fund high levels of social provision is exactly right. And one of the kind of one of the major problems that we have today is the extent to which um, a success of the welfare state, more and more people living longer, um, has meant that the expenses that, that, that are kind of put on the welfare state budget, providing pensions to retired people, providing health care to old and sick people, these are increased at a time when the, the, the active labor force is actually sometimes demographically decreasing, um, which kind of opens up all sorts of questions about people working longer, when should they retire, about migration, when should you allow the, the country to be open to immigrants to provide labor force and so on. One, one, one small point I want to make about uh, misconceptions that's really kind of interesting. 
One of the things that Americans often assume about, say, the, the Swedish and the Norwegian and the Scandinavians is, oh, these must be kind of quasi-communist collectivist right. societies who are somehow or other very different from us because actually, you know, we're the individualists and they are just like collectivists or, or communists in some kind of way. The striking thing is when, when surveys of social values uh, are undertaken, uh, there are two societies that typically look like the most individualistic in the, the, the social values that are espoused by uh, residents of that society. One is the USA, not surprisingly. The other is Sweden. Mm-hmm. Actually, the, one of the points I make in the book is that, that Sweden, uh, Swedish society is very committed to the autonomy and the choice uh, of the individual. The individual should be allowed to shape his or her own destiny, his or her own fate, without being dependent on anyone else. And the way that the Swedish individualistic values are pursued is by having governmental provision that makes available childcare, makes available healthcare, makes available social science and uh, social services for the retired in ways that free up individuals who no longer need to be dependent upon the the breadwinner or dependent upon the parent or dependent upon the employer. There's a remarkable kind of free up of individuals that comes from having social security. Whereas we think in the USA often, well, individuals can't be free if there's governmental provision. The Swedes think it's the opposite way around. The governmental provision is what makes people free to choose their life course because there are basically arrangements in place that will allow them to do so. Um, I'm glad you make that point because I do think that that we Americans often think that, that we have the only way that there's only one way to think about what freedom is and what it looks like, uh, and that I think that that's that's an important way to 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 jumble up our often I think what staid and muddy notions of the state and what. Uh, useful state intervention looks like and, and what it means in our lives. Um, so, so what are the problems with the welfare state? Surely, uh, it is it is it is not all rosy, and I would imagine that that there it's important to acknowledge both problems in the historical functioning of various welfare states, and then, as you just alluded to, uh, some of the looming crises. Uh, arguably across all regimes as we look at changes in birth rates and demographics and sustainability of, of welfare states. What, what do you think that we should know about those kinds of issues? Well, this is a very important issue because actually uh, it, it, it upsets me to think that quite often that such is the kind of the hostility towards welfare states, that the, 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 the discussion of welfare by its proponents often presents it in ways that kind of like a roseate picture that nobody really so one of the things I do in the book is try to talk very directly and very explicitly about the real problems that welfare states face, um, but to talk also about how they manage them, if they can manage them, how, how these, these problems are variously dealt with, but also to remind people that, that all systems of economic production and provision have problems and, and that the, the capitalist free market alternative um, is clearly deeply problematic in all sorts of ways that we easily forget and we usually rely on government the resolve. So the kind of problems that welfare states face, first of all, that there's, there's the ongoing um, system conflict I mentioned before, which is that welfare states are grafted onto systems of private property and capitalist economic exchange, which means that they're always in tension uh, with the, the, the economy that they, uh, they modify and that they moderate. And that tension is very difficult because 
not only is there always a kind of um, a, a conflict and a, and a kind of a political struggle between those that would tax more and provide more and those that would be taxed less and, and maintain their own property. But welfare state provision requires a successful underlying economy to support. You know, the, 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 the last thing that any welfare state needs is to kill the goose that lays the golden eggs, is to kind of stop productivity and growth and capitalist expansion. I mean, basically, welfare states work best when the underlying economy is growing and being productive, which is one reason why from the 1940s through to the 1970s, welfare states in Western Europe, in the USA, developed massively because that was a period where that, that part of the world economy was expanding and growing and productivity was rising. And the whole time, there was more and more uh, uh, expenditure on welfare services, health services, retirement services, but there was a, a larger kind of growth uh, of productivity and a larger surplus to deal with these. The difficulty for welfare states comes at times of uh, economic decline and austerity, which is, of course, what we many of us have been going through for a long period of time now. So there's that ongoing kind of system conflict between the welfare state has to modify capitalism but it relies upon capitalism for its own survival. Second big problem is um, welfare state institutions are grafted onto uh, a labor market and onto households, to families, and these areas of social and economic life are always dynamically changing. Mm -hmm. So in particular, the, 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 the economy and the labor market is undergoing nonstop dynamic change. Um, in terms of what's being produced, where it's being produced, who's being employed, how they're being employed. Similarly, the, the, the nature of our uh, family arrangements and our households change. So, for example, when the New Deal was developed in, in the USA in um, the 1930s, or when the welfare state was developed in Britain in the 1940s and 50s, there was a kind of notion, and it was largely borne out by the facts, that our family looks like a male breadwinner, uh, a wife who works at home and is takes care of the children and a couple of children. And the, the family will, by and large, stay together through its life course. Mm -hmm. Today, of course, uh, families don't look like that. Households don't look like that. Um, the expectation is no longer that, that women will stay at home and men will work. It's also the case that, that employment no longer looks anything like how it did in the 1930s or 1950s. So that instead of assuming that all of us, you know, whether we're entry-level um, unskilled laborers or whether we're employees of, of a clerical or middle-class nature, we'll have a job for life, and that, that job will be uh, providing a wage that's a breadwinner's wage and a family wage and enough to cater for all of our dependents. We live in a world where there's a precarious economy, where it's much more unequal and much more um, stratified than it used to be, and that, the, that, that we can no longer rely on social insurance arrangements or social security systems that assume the male breadwinner family wage model. Um, and in any case, it's no longer uh, the story of household and families that they look like that. So we constantly are required to rethink the welfare state and its arrangements in the light of demographic change, labor market change, household change. And yet, it's very difficult to make changes midstream because, of course, uh, first of all, you know, to, to try and transform the healthcare system, we've seen in the last um, 10 years how difficult that project is. 
because people have invested interest. There are kind of insurance companies that are absolutely committed to a certain way of doing work. There's kind of there's a a set of people who are benefiting from the current system and people who are not benefiting from the current system. And to try and get all of these players to agree to modifications and changes is very difficult. Same with the retirement social security problem. That you know the the, the, the politics of change is very very difficult to undertake. So. These are the background system problems that basically you have a, a system contradiction between welfare states and capitalist economies, and you have the ongoing problem of change and adaptation, which is politically difficult. The other kind of problems I think of as being administrative problems, which are real, but not insurmountable. So, for example, um, if, if welfare arrangements make it possible to survive while you're not in the workforce, um, if people can have children... Uh, and have these children paid for to some extent by temporary assistance to needy families or by eight independent children. If it's the case that the um, employment protections make it more difficult for uh, employers to dismiss at will their employees, all of these bring with them um, difficulties and pathologies and abuses. So it's definitely the case that a very generous system of provision might allow people to choose to be idle and choose not to work. And that kind of that notion of a poverty trap or that notion of a dependency culture is something that American uh, politics focuses on very intensively, particularly in the 1980s when the, the kind of Reagan critique of welfare was all about welfare queens and idleness and, and enforced uh, or enabled um, dependency and so on. These are, I think, genuine difficulties. On the other hand, in large part, they're a difficulty that comes from the comparison between being impoverished on, uh, you know, the the, uh, the benefit system and, and the, the, kind of the, the meager and uh, minimal provision that is available through temporary assistance to needy families or its prior uh, institution aid to families with dependent children. Living on that might be possible and even a choice that some people might make precisely because the wages that are available in the labor market are so incredibly depressed mm -hmm. that there is a kind of, the, the, and often come without health care, and often come without benefits and without protections and so on, that the, uh, the, the choice between being on benefits and being in the labor market is one that, you know, these things are, are approximately um, options that people can choose between. In a system where there's a minimum wage, in a system where there are labor unions that actually do organize and do sustain you know, reasonable conditions of employment and so on, no one much chooses to be unemployed when they could be in decent work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the difficulty of uh, dependency is in large part a consequence of what are the other choices and what are, how, how well governed are they. One of the other things to bear in mind is that, that dependency is something that we um, focus on as a welfare state outcome, as if you are dependent on the state for your income. But we're all, each of us, dependent on others in some kind of way. Usually we're dependent on our families, or we're dependent on property, or we're dependent on um, our employer and our wage contract and so on. There is no individual who isn't dependent on others in certain kinds of ways. And, and we tend to not to worry at all about family dependencies. People who are born into rich families and kind of you know have a have an easy kind of time through their private education or their Ivy League education or the kind of work that they end up doing or the, the, the apartment that their parents first purchased for them. That's an absolutely dependent lifestyle that nobody ever criticizes. Yeah. 
Yeah. On the other hand, the dependency of, of a mother who's trying to bring up children who doesn't have enough of an income, that's always seen as the big problem. So there are many aspects of welfare states that the critics point to, and they often have a point or a half point or they're, they're, they're making a claim that's not um, absurd. However, it's nearly always possible to think, how, how does that problem compare to the alternative problem? that would exist if we were not to have welfare arrangements? And more importantly, how can that welfare provision or that particular institution, how can that be managed in ways that minimize the problem and maximize its benefits? And I think that, yeah. that, that taking seriously that we're going to have to have a welfare state, there's no alternative, but we want to make that welfare state work well and be contributing to people's autonomy and people's productivity that's the kind of conversation we want to have. So we don't think, well, welfare state doesn't work and we should abandon it and get rid of it. Um, that seems to me to be a kind of liberal dystopia um, that people adopt. And I think it would be much more productive and much more sensible for a conversation to be based on, look, these are necessary arrangements to secure people in a capitalist economy. They're necessary to make capitalism function well. How can we put these arrangements in place in ways that work well for everyone? And that, that's the kind of way of thinking about the problems I want to suggest in the book, rather than pretend they don't exist, or rather than assume that they're a basis for getting rid of the welfare state altogether. We've been speaking with David Garland, who's the author of The Welfare State, a very short introduction from Oxford University Press. Um, so, David, as we work to the end of our time here, um, is there anything that you think that we've missed or you think, think that it would be useful to either highlight or bring into the conversation for our listeners as we wrap up? Sure. Well, so one, one, of, the, one of the big um, developments that's occurred really since the 1980s is the way in which the um, resurgence, I think, of kind of private capital and um, the enemies of the welfare state have transformed the nature of welfare provision. And basically, we, we sometimes talk about the impact of neoliberalism which is to say that the, the effort to um, ensure that competitive markets replace government provision. We sometimes think that neoliberalism has ended the welfare state or, you know, the welfare state used to exist but no longer does. One of the lessons I think I've learned is that, that despite 30 years of neoliberal governments and a commitment to deregulation and privatization and commercial markets and so on, that even after the success of that politics of this, these three decades, we continue to rely upon institutions of social security, institutions of social insurance, public provision. They have not gone away. We've become yeah, a more unequal society. We've become a society in the USA which is much more meager and much more minimalist in its provision to the very poor. But we continue to assume the, um, the necessity of the mainstay institution of the welfare state, which are not aid to the poor, but which are aid to and support for people in employment mm -hmm. and people in the middle class. And so that's one thing, that the welfare state, even after three decades of neoliberalism, continues to be uh, a sustained and resilient part of all modern economies. The other thing that uh, is important to mention, and then, then this is a, is a way, a kind of reminder to the critics of the welfare state, is that in the USA, much of welfare provision, much of government redistribution occurs beneath the surface through the tax code. Mm -hmm. In other words, there's a whole hidden welfare state that many scholars have written about, whereby uh, basically reallocations and government handouts 
go not to the poor, not to the needy, but actually to the very wealthy and people who are very well off. One of the things that we need to attend much more to is the way in which the tax allowances for home mortgage interest or tax mm-hmm. carried interest or, or ways in which hedge fund managers manage not to pay tax on their income because it's called something else. These are all forms of government distribution. And these are all ways in which the, 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 the tax code and the kind of special interests that work through Congress to shape that tax code provide a kind of welfare for the rich, which never gets debated in the same kind of way, never gets criticized in the same kind of way, but actually is exactly the same kind of pattern of mm-hmm. mental legal development that design ways in which you reallocate private income to particular um, welfare beneficiaries. It's just that the welfare beneficiaries that benefit most are the rich rather than the poor. So that thinking about the hidden welfare state is a really important way of balancing our discussion of this line. And recognizing that that's one of the things that distinguishes the United States even from other liberal regimes. Precisely right. That's exactly right. The, the, in, in large part, there's been the, the, the kind of the capacity of the well-to-do to lobby and represent themselves in Congress and to build lawmaking and legislation in their interests, but to do so in ways that are so kind of hidden in the tax code and so complex that they're never discussed. That's a feature of the USA, and it's our, I mean, every society is the welfare state that reflects its class formation and stratification. The USA has this welfare state for the rich, which reproduces inequality, and Ironically, these same rich people are the ones who are most critical of the so-called welfare state that's supposedly for the poor. Um, We've been speaking with David Garland, author of The Welfare State, a very short interruption, introduction, (laughs) excuse me. Uh, So, David, what what are you working on now? So, you know, I continue to work on the the questions about uh, mass incarceration and Mm -hmm. why America is so very punitive and given to a kind of penal state. but I think what I'd like to do, and I'm beginning to explore the materials and think about it, what I want to do is trace the way in which the concept of the welfare state has actually developed over time. Because um, you and I already have suggested this, that in political conversation today, the welfare state has had a negative set of ramifications. And, um, and in fact, when the welfare state phrase was first coined in the 1930s, it also was regarded as a negative um, uh, characterization. It was a way in which the conservatives in Germany argued against Bismarckian liberals who were um, seen to be kind of providing too much in the way of um, soft options for working people. Welfare states meant different things over different times. What I want to do is trace the way in which the, the larger political arguments have found their way into the meaning of that concept over time. So one project is a kind of genealogy of the concept of the welfare state to see how uh, talk about that by governments, by political actors, has changed over time and in different places, and the way in which that conversation reflects the background change in politics and economics over time. Fascinating. We have been speaking with David Garland, author of The Welfare State, a very short introduction. I'm Stephen Pemper, host of the Public Policy Channel here on the New Books Network. Um, David, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much indeed. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you.